Welcome to Let's Get Writing, the podcast that explores the creative process of writing from books, scripts, plays, and poems to songs and blogs. This series focuses on authors, publishers, and artists. Catherine's guests share their process of writing in all its forms. Listen along to discover personal journeys behind their work, explore options from indie to traditional publishing, and learn tips and secrets to inspire you. Welcome to Let's Get Writing. Welcome to Let's Get Writing. I'm your host and producer, Katherine Taylor, and I'm coming to you from Grand Falls, Windsor, Newfoundland and Labrador, Canada. So let us know from where you're watching the show. You can do that by leaving a comment on my YouTube channel at Katherine Taylor TV, TV or on Facebook at Katherine Taylor Media. And we have many shows for you to enjoy. So please subscribe and share. Certainly appreciate the love. Now, my guest today, it was born in France. He emigrated to Canada at the age of 25, and that was in 1965. Today, he's 83 years old, and he has not stopped. He's recently written a book called Flying to Extremes from Memories, um, Flying in the Arctic with Gateway Aviation out of Yellowknife. And that was from 1966 to 1971. And I might mention that the French version was published a year later. So for those of you who would like to read it in French, Pilote de bout du monde. And now with no further ado, let's welcome Dominique to the show and I'll bring him into the stream. Good morning, we're bringing you up here and you should be there. Hi, Dominique. Yes, good morning, nice to talk to you. Hi, so great to see you. Um, we're on both ends of the country, which is really amazing that technology can do this for us. <laughs> Dominique, um, you've lived a very full and accomplished life, um, working not only as a bush pilot where you started, but in senior management roles with various airlines, to teaching economics at McGill University, to operating a sailing school in Vancouver. You've covered air and land and travel and so many things, and now you've decided to become an author. And uh, my first thought and first question was, why a book and why now? Uh, the book is the result of uh, my enthusiasm of coming to Canada and, and finding my way. I came to Canada in a rather desperate condition because I hadn't succeeded in the top school in, in, uh, in science in, in France and I felt like a, a failure. So I thought I would hide my embarrassment and my shame and disappear in the deep forest in Canada and I chose Vancouver because it's on the Pacific coast and I had vision of young women half naked playing the guitar under palm trees along the Pacific beaches. And that was my kind of environment plus the forests. And then I, when I arrived, there was snow and all the logging camps were, were closed. And so I started flying because I had the, I rapidly got the equivalent of my license in France. And I was so amazed by the, the constructive spirit of, of Canadians, the, 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 the attitude that everything is possible if you get into it, 
the, the help that I got, even from the administration, which in France always told me it couldn't be done. There, there was always no, unfortunately cannot be done. Uh, in Canada, it was yes, yes, we could do it. And I don't know how, but we'll find a way. This is the answer I got from the Ministry of Transport from all civil servants. When I told them I'd like to fly because I can't chop trees down because of the snow, that's exactly what they said. Look, that's, that's fantastic. You're welcome. Uh, we'll see what we can do. I don't know how to do it, but we'll find a solution. And, and the fellow at Transport Canada guided me and helped me uh, until I got all my, my papers. I, I had never seen that before. And I started flying in a country which is beautiful, absolutely spectacular along the coast with the, the mountains and the beaches and the ocean. It was absolutely spectacular. So I, I became thrilled. And when I started flying by accident in the north, I was so thrilled and so enthusiastic that I had to share my enthusiasm with somebody. I had, I had to, to tell the world and I had nobody around to, to talk to. So I, I, wrote, I wrote it down at the time whenever I could. So all these stories were written at the time and published in various articles and, and magazines in France which resulted in a bunch of followers trying to come to Canada and, and, and join me. So this is where I, I wrote all these stories. It's to, to express my, my enthusiasm of having turned my life around and being able to, to do what I always wanted to do, which is fly airplane in a beautiful country with supportive people and fascinating passengers in the north. So oh, that's, I just, when I had time uh, after doing all the other things I did in life, I, I just put all these notes together to make a book out of it. Well, pretty amazing because as I, I was down south when I was reading the book and uh, I'll just pop it up here and you can see it behind Dominique as well. But, um, you know, I'm basking in the warmth and I'm reading your tales and stories of flying in the north. And I was like, at the best of times, flying can be a bit nerve wracking. And yet I felt like each time you were taking off, it was an adventure. Were you going to get back? I mean, it was like the Wild West. Um, you know, how, how did you, once you, maybe you didn't even realize what you were going into, did you realize it was going to be as challenging as it was to fly in, in these areas? Yes, I, I, I knew because I was based in Yellowknife uh, after mm -hmm. a year of flying up and down the coast here. Uh, I ended up with a job in Yellowknife and, uh, and I, I, was, I was scared, <laughs> hurt. So well, you many, love the pilot. <laughs> so many stories about people getting lost in the Arctic mm. because the compass doesn't work, you see, and the car, the, the, the charts or the, the maps at the time didn't have any colors to them. They were white for the ground and blue for the water. And so you had lots of patches of white and 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 blue, and uh, the maps were not very accurate. And in some areas of the map, I remember a place down the Mackenzie Valley, where there was a, a blank square and it says, uh, warning, uh, mountains have been reported in this area up to possibly 3,000 feet. That's it. 
That, so if you fly in that area, there may or may be some mountains around. So watch, watch where you're going. <laughs> oh my goodness. And I mean, I was rooting in there not to, to jump in, but many times you were not flying above 3,000 feet. You were yeah. flying under clouds. You were, I'm trying to, I did make a few notes. This is from your book. Flying in the Arctic tends to be rather stressful with pilots often having to thread their way between low hills, sneaking under the stratus clouds right above the tundra. At one, um, and I know at one point on page 200, you did describe ascending to 10,000 feet, but like that was rare. I mean, I was yes. just, I was there yeah. with you. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 the planes were overloaded most of the time because oh. the passengers wants the smallest plane capable of, of taking the load. So we were overloaded and with this overload, we couldn't fly very high because we were running out of, of air, out of lift. So it was often close to the ground and no weather. The, in the Arctic, the, the clouds tend to be absolutely flat. They're low stratus and they go on for thousands of kilometers. So you fly underneath the stratus and in summer it's okay. You can see the ground go by and the lakes and you can see some rivers and you find once in a while you recognize where you are. In winter, this is the atrocious part. It's everything is flat and, and white. And, and you can't see the shadows, so you can't tell the land from the lakes. Uh, and you can only find your position when you can recognize a landmark, like a, a deep river for or sorry, a lake with some, some cliffs that you can spot on the map. But you get one of those every 20 minutes or half an hour. The rest of the time, you don't know exactly where you are. And and in, in at all the time, you don't even know which way you're flying because the compass doesn't work and there are no radio beacons. So you're you're following the map using a, a directional gyro, which is a gyroscope, but the gyroscope has no idea where the north is. You've got to reset it on landmarks every half an hour or so, otherwise it starts uh, veering. And, and that's, I found it extremely stressful not knowing where you are and knowing which which way you're going <laughs> well i can't imagine and as i was reading about that and and, and thinking you know it, there were times you were flying you couldn't see anything and then you're also dealing with the the night at certain times of the year it's full daylight other times it's pretty much full night so you and then you deal with weather I mean, each time you went up, and I think, I, I mean, you survived all of this, you brought many people up and, and back, but did you ever feel like, oh, you know, I don't want to go? Or how did you deal with that part of the stress and continue to do that job? It's, uh, well, I, I always wanted to go because I was between 25 and 30 at the time. So uh, my, my frontal cortex wasn't fully developed and I wasn't afraid of anything. Uh, that's how young men react, just, just for the excitement, which is silly and dangerous. Mm. And yeah, uh, so I was often extremely stressed. And what I found very difficult is to not show it to the passengers and remain calm and relax and, and, and talk to them if possible, for instance, in a single order, it's so noisy, you can't talk to even 
customer sitting next to you. But but keep smiling, <laughs> even if you're terrorized and 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 peeing in your pants. Um, it's uh, that's the hard part. You you don't have anybody with whom to share your anxiety. It would be nice to have a co-pilot. Uh, mm -hmm. with whom you could say, well, what do we do now? Uh, <laughs> well, un undoubtedly, and, and you said that um, in the book, and I highlighted a few things, and that was one of the things I looked at, the loneliness in these planes that one flies on, um, on assisted in difficult places is often hard to bear. You have to keep your travel, your trials to yourself and uh, remain serious and confident even when the situation seems desperate. Yes, and so that's right. And, and, yeah, and, and that's the, the, the worst, worst part, the uh, worst flight I ever did was the flight mm -hmm. uh, to the 80s parallel, uh, close to the North Pole in February of all times of, of the year. Uh, and, and, and very cold temperature. A week of, of flying up in there was absolutely terrifying. And I was, because I, I, everything was gray. You could barely see the horizon because of crystals in the air. The, the sky is gray, the, the, the ground is gray, the, the sun stays for a week below the horizon. And, and uh, so, but I tried to stay come when I was I was really petrified and at one point the the passenger sent me a bottle of whiskey and I thought notwithstanding my efforts to look relaxed and happy they must have gotten the feeling that I was really terrified and to cheer me up they sent me a bottle of whiskey so I grabbed the bottle saying yeah I'll have a sip of that make me feel better that the, the the bottle was frozen solid. The whiskey was frozen in the bottle. So I realized that it wasn't to cheer me up that this had no whiskey. It was a, 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 a nice, polite way of telling me, Captain, it's cold, miserably cold in your airplane, even though our whiskey is frozen. That's inside, inside the airplane. Imagine what it was outside. Mind you, I had my window open because I couldn't see in front of me because every time I was breathing, it was a deposit of ice on the windshield from my condensation of my breath. So at the beginning, I had a, a can of anti-icing fluid and once in a while, I was trying to remove the ice from the inside of the windshield. But then I realized there was nothing to see anyhow. It was all gray, so why bother uh, taking the, the ice off, especially when I could realize that the fumes were, were getting me totally drunk after a while, I was a lot more relaxed. But <laughs> it was from the fumes of the alcohol <laughs> being spreading on the windshield. So I stopped, I stopped cleaning the windshield so I couldn't see anything at front. So I dropped the window on the side and I was trying to see something down, down below. So it was. It was, it was very, very challenging. Um, I would be very confident if you were flying a plane I was in. I think you've been through everything and you cool hand Luke comes to mind because not everyone could, could keep their composure and do the type of things you did. Especially, I'm thinking of your wife here because I want to bring up this um, 
picture here, and I hope you can. This is the one, isn't it? Was not that not the first time you took her with you, and then you sunk the, the plane? Is that the one? But it went right underwater. The one you yeah, were telling. This one, this one was the one with my wife. Is the 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 one where I went through the ice. On on this on this, I had a a group of American tourists. And we went up to the Arctic coast to fish for char. And at the end of the day, uh, after those, I mean, I must have spent tens of thousands of dollars to come from the US to here and charter a plane for the day all the way up to the Arctic coast. And yeah, they hadn't had any luck and there was no char. So they bought a char from an Inuit for $1 <laughs> to have something to bring home. And on the way back, we tried to push our weather, our, our airplane through the weather and left and right. And I tried to go. We were flying very close to the ground for hours. Couldn't get through. So anyhow, I turned around and came back looking for a place to land. Landed in what I thought was a Inuit community, in which was a, a very small village, not even a village, a hamlet, abandoned. There was nobody in it, just a bunch of old shacks. So we parked for the night, uh, so-called night, because it's daylight in the mm -hmm. summer. And uh, during the night, the airplane sunk. So that's what you see here in the painting. It, it, it sunk by itself. <laughs> so the next morning, I said, it took me, it took me three days of nonstop working in the, in the water. The water was cold because it was ice about a mile away from, from there. The water was cold, so I worked. I was totally naked because I had no, no replacement clothes, and I forced some, some ten-gallon kegs, uh, and wrapped ropes around them and tried to lift the airplane off. And eventually, I got the airplane out from the pontoons, and uh, and we we flew out. So uh, that that's this this episode. <laughs> Oh my so it means that you know when you're you're on your own, and if something happens like your airplane sinks, you've got to find a way to get it out because nobody's going to come and help you. Nobody knew we were there anyhow. So, <laughs> well, on one occasion, a gentleman by the name of Ron—I'm I'm just trying to look here to see his name—he did come to help you one time, and it wasn't. And, and I think it was you said might have been you were in your 80s which would be not too long ago that you finally had that drink you promised him with him ah, like remember yes. that story yeah yes, um, yes it's I, a, a delightful fellow um ron sheerden mm -hmm. ron sheerden uh was a well-known figure and he's been uh brought into the, the the heritage aviation heritage group in alaska uh, for all his flying dedication to aviation. Uh, he, I, I was flying uh, with some people to the Arctic coast to a place called Coppermine in the middle of the Arctic coast. And uh, about 45 minutes before we got there, it's a flight of about five hours maybe, 45 minutes before the, the, we got there, the engine started running very roughly. And it, it, it barfed and puked and hesitated and stopped and started again. And yeah, we dragged our way to the coast and then it quit altogether when we arrived over Copper Mine. So we glided 
on the water, on the ocean, and sort of copper mine, and, uh, and then drifted back to shore. So then my, my passengers, I think they, they lived in copper mine, so they went home and they were happy. That was the end. Now, what do I do with my airplane? So I, I had a toolbox, so I started working on the engine, and I needed parts to replace some, some wiring because it discovered that the half the engine is burned down. So the wires, uh, the, the, the uh, insulation of, of the spark plug wires had burned down. And there was a, a leak of hot exhaust gas. So I, I had no way of fixing it. So I was there working on it. And about 24 hours later, an airplane comes down, lands, and it was uh, it was this, this fellow, uh, Bob, and uh, he told me, well, how, how are things with you? We said, well, not very good because I'm stuck here. My engine burned down and quit on landing. And said, well, I've got the same airplane. And so let me see if I can help you. So he spent an hour and he had the spare parts in his airplane. So mm -hmm. he, he fixed it. And uh, and said, well, now it's it's okay. Now it's, it's working again. So, and then it disappeared. And then 50 years later, uh, I was able to track him down uh, because I I asked him, well, no, what can I can I give you something? He said, no. But next time we meet, you buy me a beer. Next time we met was 60 years later. So uh, he came over for supper with his wife and. I finally was able to give him a beer because he had saved me. Otherwise, I'd still be there. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. And there were, there are many wonderful stories in there, honestly. And you do such a beautiful job of capturing the feeling. But one that stayed with me, besides the one where you just about drowned your wife on the first trip, which I would never have gone with you again. And she's <laughs> remarkable, uh, I might add. But... The one where you were flying in, in, the, in the plane de-iced, we all know we de-iced today and I'm very thankful for it, but you could not avoid this. And the plane was going down 100 feet, 200 feet a minute, you know, and you had so many feet to play with, but you didn't think you were going to make it through that one. And no, I, I, knew. That well, you I, I knew it was on a flight with a single order and I had 10 American tourists in uh, their char, uh, their, their buckets of charring, so, so it was a, a fairly heavy load. And uh, flying along the Arctic coast, of the flight was about four or five hours. Coming back from a little community called uh, Bathurst Inlet uh, on the central Arctic coast and going back to a lodge on Great Bear Lake. And so during the flight, we were started flying underneath the clouds and it got so thick and so so low that I, I, I could make it. So we flew into the clouds, over the clouds. We could find our way through the with the sun. I couldn't read the map. I couldn't tell where I was, but I, at least I could know which way we were flying because of the sun. I had a, an astral compass on my airplane to take shots at the sun and find out which direction we were flying, at least. And eventually the clouds got thicker and thicker and we ended up flying, we couldn't go over it, over them, couldn't go underneath it. So we flew into them 
But then the problem was I didn't know where I was and I didn't know which way I was going because I had lost reference to the sun, mm -hmm. which is most embarrassing. And the other thing is that in the clouds, in the, when it's cold or around zero, you run the risk of picking up ice, which we did. And we picked up more and more ice and I eventually increased power, put the flaps down and did everything I could to try to keep the airplane flying. And when everything was was pushed to the limit, I couldn't do anything else. We started going down, and I was I found it very interesting because I knew we were going down. I knew we hit the ground at, at cruising speed uh, because there was fog all the way down and solid fog right on the ground. So we come down over the tundra and never see the ground coming, and hit at cruising speed with full power on. Uh, when we got down and there's nothing I could do. So I was, I was surprised because I thought it was just boring. I was, we spent 20 or 25 minutes going down and I had nothing to do. There was nothing to see. And I looked back and I was wondering whether to tell the person, look, in about 15 minutes at the rate we're going, we'll just explode on the tundra. And, but then they were all happy. Some of them were asleep. Some of them were reading because it was a smooth flight. So I said, well, look, they're happy, I'm happy. Why, why disturb them and tell them, to give them the bad news? So we went down, down, down. And when we got to the level of the tundra, I knew it was coming. And so I dropped the window to look and try to see the ground before we hit it. And indeed, I saw the ground coming up fairly quickly. Uh, by, by looking down, and so I just pulled back to level off the airplane so we didn't hit it with a nose in, into it, but just as if we were landing. We were flying at 200 kilometers per hour. And as the airplane slowed down and stalled at, at high speed, we hit the ground, except that when we hit, it was water, and we were on pontoons. So we made what I would call a landing <laughs> at virtually cruising speed in the fog. We just hit the lake. So I chopped off the power and I couldn't see anything through the open windows, all fog and, and water. I couldn't see the edge, but my passenger told me he could see the edge of the lake on his side. It was very close. We landed nearly parallel to the side of the... So I told him, well, look, tell, give me, tell me where we can park the airplane because I've you know, we're gonna, we're sinking. With all this ice, we're sinking in the lake. I didn't know whether it was lake or river, river or, or whatever. So, and all of a sudden he told me, oh, there's a little beach there. So I turned the airplane 90 degrees and sure enough, there was a little beach and I rammed the airplane on the beach and I was totally baffled. So I let the engine cool off because all the needles were in the red. We've been far for 25 minutes. And I saw my passengers staring out through the windows. I said, well, what are you looking at? Because on my side, I, I couldn't see this. And he said, oh, well, I'm looking at the tents. Tents in the tundra, and there's nothing in the, you know, in a radius of 500 or 1,000 kilometers. There's no, no community, there's nothing. So I looked out and sure enough, there are two tents. And I figured, well, those are, prospectors or people who are doing something, some research, and they camp every 500 kilometers, you find one of those 
with two tents. There is a cookhouse and a tent for for a, a, a PhD and a PhD student or two geologists. Or they, they, and so that's, not, that's, that's absolutely amazing. Couldn't believe it. And then a lady came from the back and, and, and said, have we arrived at the lodge yet? I said, no, ma'am, uh, not yet. We've got another two or 300 kilometers to go, but the weather is so bad, I, would, I thought we would stop for a cup of coffee. I said, oh, great, he said. Uh, I just, I was hoping to be able to stretch my legs. So I told her, well, if you stretch your legs, don't go too far because the fog is so thick that even the seagulls are walking. So don't get lost. <laughs> and all of my passengers came out through the cabin because the back of the airplane was underwater and it was all iced up on the pontoon. So they all came down the ladders down onto the pontoon and, and, and slid on the side of the pontoon onto it. And we spent 12 hours in the cook tent and the passengers thought it was absolutely normal. You know, you stop, the weather is bad. So you stop for a cup of coffee. What's wrong with that? So they spent 12 hours in the cook tent telling fishing stories and it was all very friendly. I had no idea where we were. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know who these guys were. <laughs> Just and, what you want to hear. <laughs> and it took me a long time to get them to pull out their maps. Mm -hmm. And I could see marks and, and they were all concentrating around one area. So I, I memorized the looks of the lake and some of the things around it, and then rushed for one excuse of another to the airplane to try to find that lake. And I found it on my own chart. So I knew where we were. So after doing 12 hours, the, my passengers were very happy because there was an oil stove in the cookhouse. It was nice and warm. And they ate everything the guy had in his cookhouse. They opened cans of tuna and, and they made sandwiches. Uh, and they drank coffee and, and whatever they had in the camp without realizing that those guys were spending the rest of the summer there and it was all their food. <laughs> so uh, I, I told the, the, the fellow, the geologist, well, look, don't worry, I'll come back with more food to replenish them. So let them eat whatever they want, I'll come back. And the next morning, the, the ceiling had gotten up very, it was very low, maybe 50 meters or so, less, certainly less than 100 meters, but the tundra is flat underneath it. So there was unlimited visibility, but extremely low ceiling. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, the ice had melted. So we took off again, and after an hour or so, we arrived at the lodge at seven o'clock in the morning, just in time for breakfast. And the passengers were thrilled. They saw it was a beautiful flight, very smooth, nice pilot, nice landing. They stopped on the way uh, because of weather. And and uh, and at so the end of the day, they all invited me for a drink and tapped me on the back. They said, what a wonderful pilot. And I never <laughs> told them anything. Said, everything is normal. <laughs> well. There are times when some of the stories are best kept to yourself, perhaps. <laughs> Dominique, I think I hope we've intrigued people with the little time we've had to share. And there are so many more stories in the book, Flying to Extremes, which is available on Amazon and all the usual places published. I did have it up by Hancock 
Press, if anyone is interested in that. And actually, our time together has, has come to an end, but I could listen to you all day about these stories. It might not help me on my next flight, however, but I do enjoy hearing the stories, I think, coming from where I come from in Newfoundland and sometimes flying in here or, or being close to nature and in wilderness and often hearing stories as I grew, grew up about different things. So I'm not immune to the things you talk about, even though it's certainly not that remote. But thank you so much, uh, Dominic. Yeah, I wish you all the best. I understand you're going off to uh, to sell some books today and meet people and sign okay. books. Wonderful. Yeah, at the boat show. Yes, a lot of people. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, and I, I think we've hardly touched all the wonderful things you do. So um, please check out uh, Flying to Extremes on Facebook and you can be in touch with Dominique and maybe he'll even tell you a few stories. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you so much. And thank you folks for joining us on Let's Get Writing. We'll continue to bring you great authors, great stories, and please join us every two weeks. Have thank a great you. day. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening. We'd love to hear from you. So please let us know what you thought of this episode and share your ideas for future guests or topics. You can email us at letsgetwriting at katherinetaylor.ca. Don't forget to subscribe and even leave a review. And if you love this episode, share it with a friend. Until next time, believe in yourself and let's get writing.